listening to Flex Coaches Inside the Game. We're talking with sportscaster Bob Costas. What's the best part about your job in announcing games for baseball? For baseball, the best part for me is it's just an ongoing connection to something that I've been interested in my entire life. Um, and corny as it sounds, the idea that you can connect with family and friends uh, this is a story that I never told until recently, and then someone asked me directly about it, so I mentioned it. Most people didn't know that in the early 90s, um, when David Letterman left NBC and went to CBS, he offered me the hour after his show. I had had the program after Letterman on NBC in the late 80s, early 90s, and as part of the incentive, uh, CBS offered me a spot on 60 Minutes, as well as the show after Letterman, and one of the reasons besides loyalty to NBC, um, and it must be said, it wasn't entirely altruistic. NBC had the Olympics. They, had a, they were going to get a piece of baseball back. Uh, they had the NBA during the Jordan era. So th there was a lot to recommend it. But one of the reasons was you can't say to a kid, and my kids then were like seven and four, you can't say to a kid, hey, daddy's going to interview the secretary of state. Want to come along? <laughs> but you can say, let's go to the NBA finals. Let's go to the World Series. Let's go to the Olympics. So one of the great blessings of what I've done, and I'm sure that Al Michaels or Jim Nance or Joe Buck would tell you the same thing. You can share it with so many different people. You can say, yeah. hey, I can get you tickets to the World Series. Or you want to come and watch this from the booth or whatever it might be. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to Michael Jordan, whatever it is. That's such, that's such a blessing. That's one of the best things about it. Yeah, my kids, my daughters still love that today. That's like they, their best memories are going to hockey games with me and being behind nope. the scenes and meeting all these guys. And, you know, not funny it was in the beginning. They didn't know who they were. So mm -hmm. their, their impressions, like they met Dennis Potvin. They had no idea who he was. Mm -hmm. They just thought he was this nice old guy who gave him, you know, hot dogs. That's all they ever thought about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, something that I've, I, I, in my research, um, the video tease for the 1998 World Series, an amazing moment. There's a lot. There's a great backstory with, with Kurt Gibson on that. Um, go into how that all came about, because Les Dennis kind of told me how when he helped facilitate. Les was a producer at NBC. I, I I love, Les was such a, a lovely man. He was a real gentleman. Oh, such a great guy. Taught me so much. Um, he put that tease together with a group of guys at 88 World Series with interdispersing, you know, um, mm -hmm. Robert Redford from The Natural with Kurt Gibson coming out. Yeah. Um, the backstory to that's amazing, how that all came about. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Les, you may have noted this. Um, one of the shots after the jubilant Dodgers, one of the shots that Harry Coyle took was of the disconsolate A's filing out of their dugout. And you see Les Dennis there who was positioned in the dugout for whatever post-game stuff was going to happen. And we thought the A's were going to win the game. And there's Les Dennis in his little sweater, uh, the typical Les Dennis look. But anyway, here's my basic contribution to this. I say to David Neal, uh, who's producing the pregame show, after it's all over and the tumult has subsided, you know, that was so theatrical. It reminded me of Robert Redford's last at bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. And light bulb goes off in David's head. And you couldn't edit things digitally the way you no. can. Uh, they had to stay up all night long. And then literally the finished product was brought with a police escort from some editing studio elsewhere, Beverly Hills or something, to Dodger Stadium. 
The game's going to start late afternoon, so it's in prime time, Eastern time. And Les had some input into this. And they show me the what they've got. And I remember the glare of the sun was such, I'm looking at a monitor, I'm standing in front of the first base dugout, the visitor's dugout, I'm putting a scorecard over it so I can kind of see it. And then I scribbled this script on the back of my own scorecard, where it keeps score of the game. But the pictures were so great that all I had to say was something like, echoes of a miracle. I think that was the first thing I said, echoes of a miracle. And then with Randy Newman's um, score from The Natural, they intercut Gibson's at bat with Robert Redford's at bat. And everything about it was eerily parallel, including Wilford Brimley as the manager of the New York Knights and Tommy Lasorda, both of them jumping up and each of them getting about just about high enough to maybe slip, you know, (laughs) the LA Times (laughs) beneath their spikes. Everything, it just played perfectly. And as the last shot was Gibson coming toward the plate, Uh, and his teammates waiting for him, and Randy Newman's theme, and it says, welcome to game two of the World Series. I didn't say another word. And the World Series was so primary that you didn't have an audience of 12 million people. You had an audience of 30 million people. So much so that Saturday Night Live was on after that game, and it was live, and Dennis Miller was the host of Weekend Update. And halfway through a baseball rolled in front of him on the, on the weekend update desk. And he picked up the ball and he goes, wow, Gibson hit the shit out of that one. <laughs> All the way from LA to New York. <laughs> oh my God. You've done everything in sports, every sport you can think of. Is there something still left for you to do? What I'm doing now is a return to some of the things that I really enjoyed doing. Um, what I do at the Baseball Network, but also now I have the new program at HBO. Uh, early 2000s, I did a show called On the Record. This is brilliantly mm-hmm. titled Back on the Record. It has a lot of the elements that you really can't do on a regular basis on network television. In-depth interviews, commentaries of some length, that kind of thing. And I always enjoyed doing that. I still have my taste of baseball uh, with the MLB Network. Um, so at this point, I just want to do what I'm well suited to do as well as I can do it quality, much more so than quantity. You know, people will say to me, do you wish you were at the Olympics? I did a dozen of them. I'm glad I did it, but not for one moment. Do I say to myself, I wish I was there. I wish I was doing this, or I would say that, you know, my, the book is closed on that for me. And at this point, uh, while I still would have the capability of doing it, I don't know that I have the energy to do it. It's a lot of work. That's an all-out thing. You know, you get, you get to a point, and not to use a strained metaphor, you get to, the, to a point where, you know, if it was a basketball guy, maybe you're not a 40-minute guy. Maybe you're, maybe you're really good, though, for 15, 20 minutes of the game if it's the right segment of the game and it plays to your strengths. So I don't want to stop, but I definitely want to slow down, which, which is what I've done. The one thing that I was never involved in, that almost every sportscaster probably wishes they could put a check next to, is the Masters. I did uh, the US Open a few times as a secondary host to Dan Hicks and Ryder Cups and President's Cups, uh, Players' Championships, Uh, but the Masters stands apart. But there's no real reason, A, it's always on CBS, and B, although I follow it, I have no real deep connection to golf. 
I mean, Jim Nance, you can tell, is organically connected. As good as he is on other things, he's just perfect for that. And the sentiment he expresses is something that's important about sentiment. People can tell if it's genuine. You know, Jim's kind of, by some people's taste, a little syrupy when it comes to the masters. But the reason why I'm okay with it is that I know it's genuine from Jim. He's connected to it. You know, you're talking about how important is it to know the history? He knows the history of golf and of the masters every bit as well as Vin Scully knows the history of baseball. And that's what separates him. That's what makes him great at it. So, you know, would I like to have been able to say that I played a small part in the Masters? Yeah, but the Masters has gotten by very well without me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think of, it Toughest part of your job still today? You know, on the worst day of doing this job, you still like it better than most people will ever like their jobs on, <laughs> on their best day. Uh, I, I don't know that there's any part that's terribly tough because I've reduced the part that was the toughest as the years go by, which is the travel and the yeah. time away from home and the checking in and out of hotels. Uh, and I've, I've shaped it now. I've been lucky enough to have had a good long run. And now I'm, I'm a little bit like the guy uh, who had some blockbuster movies, but now he wants to do, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a merchant ivory film someplace or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just kind of picking and choosing my, my spot. So I can't even think of anything about it that, that I don't like or that I have a legitimate complaint about. Any mentors, anybody really help you along the way? Yes. Um, Marty Glickman was a mentor. When I got to NBC, I was only 27 years old. And Mike Weissman, in a very smart move, had hired Marty as the so-called announcer's coach. Yeah, and Marty, that. his own way, he was never overbearing. In his own way, even for someone who already was an established Hall of Famer like Dick Emberg, he would gently offer observations. And Dick was such a good soul that he would accept those observations. And for me, he was extremely helpful. One of the things he said was, you look so much younger than you are. You're young to begin with. You look so much younger than you are. Slow down. You know a lot, but you can't cram it all in. And sometimes when you're trying, subconsciously you don't realize you're speaking more rapidly than you want to. Slow down. It will make you seem more mature. Now, that seems like a simple observation, but no one else had ever said it to me. And he was right. Okay. I've always wanted ask you about this um you froze for a david letterman and the elevator races i know um i me do it again always want to ask you about this i was a letterman fan growing up as a kid in college mm -hmm. and you called the elevator races and the dog sled races on his show was that at that point was that a highlight for you was it kind of oh, fun huge. Was it kind of huge i was a big letterman fan i was a fan of his morning show which was a disaster from from his standpoint <laughs> over they canceled the show and then they gave him the late night show and it premiered in February of 1982 and the first elevator races were in April of 82. So they have this idea, they're going to have the elevator races and they call the sports office. And I think they were looking for Marv Albert or Don Cricky or somebody, and they were all out of town on assignments. And a, a secretary there said, well, you know, we got Bob Costas. I was sitting right there. Got Bob <laughs> so I will send them up. All right. So, so I go to, Studio 6A, I think it was. Um, and David, not only had never met me and I'd never met him, but when he introduced me in the lobby to set the stage for the elevator races, he called me Bob Costa. Um, 
But I knew what they wanted because I was a fan of it. I knew they wanted yeah. this mock serious thing. Like I was overlooking the 18th green of the masters or at the Olympics or something. So I gave them pretty much what they wanted and David liked it. And he asked me back. And then I was on for other things. Like you said, dog sled races. And, and one of the highlights was the third anniversary show. They had uh, an idea where if a baby was born during the show, that that baby would be crowned the late night baby and have all kinds of perks and benefits for their entire life. So they send me to one hospital and they send, of all people, Vince McMahon to another hospital and we're standing watch to see if a baby is going to be born. And again, they don't give you any script. You just say what you say, do a minute. And I said something like, well, so Dave, we're here following all the pre and post natal action. And David liked that. And then the baby was born in McMahon's hospital. And as time was running out, they go to me. And everything's set up in the maternity ward at the hospital I'm at. They've got streamers and, and a cake and cigars and balloons and noisemakers. And I'm talking to the, to the nurse and everything. And so, no, you know, no baby here, blah, blah, blah. And then throwing it back to David, I said, so, Dave, as you can see, the party continues apace. Meanwhile, just down the hall, the desperate cries, the, the, the plaintive cries of desperately ill men and women go unheeded. <laughs> And David, for some reason, really liked that. Like he threw his head back in his chair and really liked it. So uh, the, the point of this was that whether he realized it or not, David Letterman really helped my career because being on with him at that relatively early stage of my career and doing this irreverent stuff and having it be well-received encouraged me to be more myself in other settings. You know, I was so concerned with being young and looking even younger. Yes that I wanted to seem like I was totally professional. So I was doing a very good, straightforward job, but not enough of my personality was coming out. Don Olmeyer, who had hired me at NBC, we were doing the hula bowl once, which was a secondary thing, but there we are in Hawaii. And we're playing golf the day before uh, the game and I'm telling him stories and whatnot and he's laughing. And he says, you know, if you let this part of you come out on the air, if you never do that, you're gonna be good, you're good already. But if you ever want to be great, I want to hear some of what I'm hearing on the golf course. I want to hear that on the air. And then Letterman giving me that platform. It wasn't his intention. He just wanted a funny segment. But that yeah. working, it did, really, really propelled me early on in my career. So I'm grateful to him. Now, the other thing that I always was fascinated with, because I did this to my wife when I asked Jackie to marry me. I asked her on television at a Devils game when I was working on Devils hockey. Ahmad Rashad set oh, yeah. the standard for this. Did you have any idea that was going to happen to you guys on NFL Live that year? Or we, what was I mean? Was that like a total no. shock to everybody? No, John Filippelli, the producer, knew, but I didn't know. Just go to Ahmad, and he's got something he wants to say. And I, I knew that Ahmad had been dating Felicia, but I didn't know that this was going to be the big moment. Um, and <laughs> that's that's the way it played out. And then we we found her, and she, that was on the pregame that the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade or whatever. Um, and then she comes in and at halftime, she gives her answer and she accepts at halftime. Was it kind of like a, Whoa, wait a minute moment. Were you kind of like, you, you, did you think he was joking at first or did you think he was serious? As I remember, it's been a long time since I've seen the tape, but as I remember, I said, you're serious, Ahmad, right? <laughs> yes, Bobby, I am, you know, blah, blah. So we, we, we bring her in and uh, you know, then 
we were we were kind of the hurt the Avis to uh, the NFL today's hurts. Uh, we had the the AFC. We had the lesser markets. They were always beating us in the ratings, and they were the more established show. So John Filippelli and Mike Weissman just said, you know, we want you guys to have fun. So Pete yeah. Axel, later Paul McGuire, oh, and Amal, was kind of a, a loose show. Um, and when it was all over with, and we thanked Felicia for coming in, and Ahmad C on the post game, I haven't thought of this in years. I said something like. And in our continuing desperate effort to improve our ratings on next week's show, Pete Axtelm will be spotted in a secluded grotto with Dr. Ruth Westheim, who was kind of a major figure at that time. Pop culture. That was just stupid. It was just stupid, but it was fun. Oh, my God. Now, when you did, my daughters know you for this, mm -hmm. Cars. When you did the yeah. voiceover at Bob Cutlass. How yeah. much fun was that for you to do something like that? Something, you know, it's kind of iconic for kids. They don't know who you are and now you're doing this. And that's how my daughter's first heard of you. Yeah, I'm big in that demographic, like two <laughs> and a half to six. And as you know from experience, not only do kids like it, they'll watch it every day. They'll watch yes. it like 50 times, you know? Yeah. So, and I've received lots of pictures in the mail of the car that's meant to be me. And they wisely had it be a compact car because they wanted it to be true to life. <laughs> so people asked me to sign it as Bob Cutlass. Um, and then a picture of me and a picture of the car. So I signed one as myself and the other as Bob, as Bob Cutlass. And people, my friends will tell you, it's not uncommon for someone to come up to me, a stranger at a restaurant. You're on, you're on our TV every night. And then <laughs> I, I realized we're, they're talking about cars. You know, they've, they've, got, they've got young kids. The great thing about that was we were talking about Slapshot earlier. I met Paul Newman through that because he had a major role uh, in the first cars. And so I showed up and he was finishing his recording session and I was waiting to start mine. And we fell into it. We had a nice conversation. We wound up going to dinner. Um, and then we did a segment, the two of us, about the sports films that he'd been in uh, on HBO. Uh, so a big upside of cars for me was that... Um, it, it forged a relationship with, uh, or allowed a relationship with Paul Newman. <clears throat> now, Mickey Mantle is behind you on there. Yes. And he was a, he was a big, big influence and big, you were a big fan of his growing up. First time you met him, did he live up to your expectations of what he thought or you thought? Yes. Uh, Tony Kubek, who was my partner on the Saturday NBC games of the week was his longtime teammate with the Yankees. <clears throat> and he set it up for me. And at that time, Mickey was a greeter, uh, at a hotel in Atlantic City, which had gotten both of these guys, both him and Willie Mays, suspended for a period of time from baseball by Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. Think about how quaint that is. You're a yes. greeter, you know, and now uh, MLB and every other sport is encouraging thing. as much as possible. But, you know, then here were these beloved Hall of Famers who didn't make all that much money in their careers, even though they were at the top of what was then the salary scale. So they're just trying to, you know, figure out a way to make some bucks. So that's where he was. And Tony had kind of primed him and he could not have been nicer to me. Um, he was just a Mickey at his best was so charming and so humble um, and so appreciative of, of baseball people. And if somebody vouches for you, I'm sure it's true in hockey too. There's a difference yeah. in someone who's just a general person. One of the greatest compliments you can get is when someone who's steeped in baseball says, you're a baseball guy. And I was a baseball guy. And Mickey knew that. 
uh, Tony helped to, to steer him in that direction, but he knew that. And we became very good friends um, to the point where when he came out of the Betty Ford Clinic, there were a lot of people that wanted to interview him. And he wanted me to do that interview in prime time on NBC, which I did. Family asked, asked me to do uh, the eulogy at his funeral. In closing, what advice would you give to a young person who wants to be a broadcaster? What would you tell them, things they should know? I would say get as well-rounded an education as you possibly can. The broader your frame of reference, first of all, you don't know for sure that you're going to wind up being a sports announcer. You might change directions. But the broader your frame of reference, even if the primary subject is sports, if you can bring something else to bear, think of Vince Scully, think of Jack Whitaker, think of Jim McKay. Uh, they weren't conducting classes and things beyond the primary subject, but they had something in the back, so the back of their mind that sometimes could be brought to bear. Plus, the more you read, the greater your appreciation of language becomes. Not that you're going to rip something off and plagiarize it, but yeah. you're, the, the better read you are, the greater your appreciation of language. And that makes you a better broadcaster. Um, but the other point is, after you've stated that, you can't learn to be a broadcaster in a classroom. You want to go to the Newhouse School at Syracuse or whatever its equivalent is someplace else. And you, there's a lot you can learn about the dynamics of the business. But to find out if you can be a broadcaster, you've got to do it. And some people who are willing to work hard and are very smart and know a lot about sports just don't have that knack. They're just not yep. living fast enough. But, and the only way to find that out is by doing it. Now, don't expect right off the bat that you're going to be as good as you one day hope to be. But if there isn't something there that indicates that there's a possibility, then you have to shift gears. And there's all kinds of jobs within broadcasting and within sports besides those who are behind the mic or in front of the camera. Best piece of advice that was ever given to you, who gave it to you and how to use it today? You know, this is not an original answer. It's the easiest advice to give and the hardest advice to follow. Be yourself. Well, almost nobody, the first time they walk out on stage, the first time they sit in front of a microphone or a camera, almost nobody says, yeah, I'm gonna be just the way I am when I'm out to dinner with my friends or I'm walking down the street. No, you've got to master the basics and the mechanics before the spontaneity and a little touches of personality can come out. But all of the best broadcasters, in their own way, have that. John Madden had it, but he didn't have the responsibility of calling play-by-play. -play. But no. Pat Sorrell, in his own laconic way, was still a distinct personality. You had a sense of who he was. He was a different person from Al Michaels. And you get a sense of Al Michaels over the years. If, if you're just doing a connect-the-dots competent job, that's fine, and you'll have a place in the business. But if there isn't something about you, you know, it doesn't have to be bombastic. The reason why it worked for Harry Carey was that it was natural. And what he did on the air was barely an amplification of who he was when he was <laughs> on the air. But it doesn't have to be at that level. But if in some way there isn't some signature, something about you, some element of style that isn't generic, then you'll never be anything other than okay. Today in the world, everyone's about success, success. You know, no one wants to fail. But what can failure teach you about life? <laughs> that, that life goes on. 
you better, you better get up off the deck. Don't just lie there. You know, you can get knocked down. You don't have to wait until they count 10. You can get back up. And, you know, the definition for me of failure um, probably isn't other people's definition. Um, I think we all have, no matter how lucky and successful we've been, we all have a few situations that we'd like a do-over on. Um, yeah. To me, uh, failure is when I don't do as well as I think I'm capable of. So if someone else would give it an A minus, I might consider that a failure, at least <laughs> earlier. I think now, now I've improved on that because <laughs> I don't want to be stressed out all the time. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for your time. Much appreciated coming here on uh, Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach Bob. I wish you all the best. I hope to see you during the baseball season. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. That's what they, Mike Fix is. Yeah. They end the lockdown and get the ballpark. So thanks a lot, Bob. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. Take care.